0: Let's try that again. Good morning church. Good morning. Oh yes. You know when you have the time of like greeting each other you know the, the no one wants to sit up in the the front front and so it's always a lonely time for the, the pastor. Uh, when I was in uh, just finished university I was uh, asked to help with a kind of a camp kind of thing for uh, kids that were just entering university in the States. And these are for kids that grew up um, in American families, but around the world. And then they are trying to readjust back to the States. And so it's to help them kind of learn and understand America. and also just to be able to have a time of kind of reintegrating into to culture and prepare for university. And this retreat, um, you know, is a good time. The kids really bond with each other. They have this shared experience of, of having, being American, and then also having grown up in different countries around, around the world. And by the final night, they had, you know, they've all become best friends. And so they want to stay up all night and play games and hang out, watch movies. And so that was the custom to, to have like an all-nighter at the end. And I, as the counselor, I had to be responsible. And I, I came into one room where several of these kids were in there. This was by this time, the sun was beginning to come up. And they were, there was a snack table, you know, to have snacks all night, um, you know, feed a bunch of teenagers with sugar all night. Um, I don't know who thought of that, but it's a terrible idea. So there's these kids in there that were taking cookies and there was this stone wall on the side and they were just taking cookies and wailing them against the wall. Still to this day, I have no idea what made them decide to do that. I asked them and they am like, I don't know. Thought it'd be fun. Um, but strangely, it gives us, in a, it's a silly example, but it gives us a little bit of insight into who we are as people. That we have this tendency towards destructive behavior. Even in such a a silly example as that, we have this tendency to do things without us even being able to rationalize it. To throw a cookie against the wall, I mean, it's not an experiment. You know what's going to happen. It wastes food. It does no good for anyone. It didn't do good for them because I made them clean it up. Why did they do that? Why are we like that? And what does God, uh, how does God respond to this? And even more importantly, how do we change? So this, this morning, we've been walking through Isaiah, the first 12 chapters of Isaiah. And the first 12 chapters, partly because these are chapters of Isaiah that, don't get as much attention. And so we wanted to spend a little bit of time in, if we believe all of Scripture is God-breathed, to make sure that we spend time learning from those parts of Scripture, maybe that we've rarely read, rarely learned from. Isaiah has a message from God. Uh, Again and again through Isaiah, the God is called the Holy One of Israel. And and this Holy God wants to have a relationship with us, his people. Uh, And the problem, the barrier is that we are rebellious. We're like those kids who want to just throw cookies at a wall. Isaiah gives us a message. It's delivered to Jerusalem and Judah, but it's really delivered to all of God's people throughout time. And so uh, this morning, we want to look through this in three phases. Um, First, a song about a vineyard. Second, the bad fruit of the vine, a warning. And then three, the true vine that bears good fruit. Let me read for us from the first um, first seven verses of Isaiah chapter 5. If you have your Bible and want to open there as well, um, I would invite you to do so. Let me sing for my beloved, my love song concerning his vineyard. My beloved had a vineyard, On a very fertile hill, he dug it and cleared it of stones and planted it with choice vines. He built a watchtower in the midst of it and hewed out a wine vat in it, and he looked for it to yield grapes. But it yielded wild grapes, and now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, Judge between me and my vineyard. What more was there to do for my vineyard that I have not done in it? When I looked for it to yield grapes, why did it yield wild grapes? For now I will tell you what I will do to my vineyard. I will remove its hedge and it shall be devoured. I will break down its wall and it shall be trampled down. I will make it a waste. It shall not be pruned or hoed, and briars and thorns shall grow, grow up. And I will command the clouds that they rain no rain upon it. For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel, and the men of Judah are his pleasant planting. And he looked for justice but behold, bloodshed for righteousness, but behold, an outcry. This is the word of the Lord. So this is a poem. It's a, it's a love poem. It's a romantic love song. God is telling his people, who he calls his beloved, that he has done what needs to be done to provide them the best Kind of life. It uses poetic imagery, and I don't know about you and your history of taking any English classes or literature classes. I did not thrive in poetry. But this is using this idea of a vineyard. Plants that grow grapes for the sake of making wine. And God is the gardener. God's done everything to ensure these grape vines thrive. Not just thrive, but produce delicious, sweet grapes. It's fertile land, cleared with boundaries to keep all of the the whatever might, you know, pests that might eat those grapes or bother the vines. Established a presence with the grapes watched over it, cared for it. The conditions were set up for beautiful, wonderful-tasting grapes. And sadly, the grapes tasted as if God had done nothing. But that wasn't the case. We see in verse 4, what more was there to do for my vineyard that I have not done for it? Sometimes people look at the world and see all of the terrible things that are are happening. And they think, it seems like God is not involved at all. And strangely, God is actually saying the same thing. He's looking down at this vineyard and like, I did everything for this, and it's as if I'm not even there it's not because God is distant. It is because his people became distant. God created a world for us to thrive and offers to be a lifeline for us to flourish. But instead, we've chosen to live as if God is not there. At the end of this section about the vineyard, it says that God expected people to live rightly and justly, but instead there is violence and oppression. So the, the big chunk of this chapter then works out these warnings. Uh, it's a series of statements using this word woe, which is almost like a, a lament And so I'll read the remaining part of chapter 5. This is starting in verse 8. Woe to those who join house to house, who add field to field until there is no more room, and you are made to dwell alone in the midst of the land. The Lord of hosts has sworn in my hearing, surely many houses shall be desolate, large and beautiful houses, without inhabitant, for ten acres of vineyard shall yield but one bath, and a homer of seed shall yield but an ephah. Woe to those who rise early in the morning, that they may run after a strong drink, who tarry late into the evening as wine inflames them. They have lyre and harp, tambourine and flute, and wine at their feasts but they do not regard the deeds of the Lord or see the work of his hands. Therefore, my people go into exile for lack of knowledge. Their honored men go hungry, and their multitude is parched with thirst. Therefore, Sheol has enlarged its appetite and opened its mouth beyond measure, and the nobility of Jerusalem and her multitudes will go down. Her revelers, and he who exults in her. Man is humbled, and each one is brought low, and the eyes of the haughty are brought low. But the Lord of hosts is exalted in justice, and the holy God shows himself holy in righteousness. Then shall the lambs graze as in their pasture, and the nomads shall eat among the ruins of the rich. Woe to those who draw iniquity with cords of falsehood, who draw sin as with cart ropes, who say, let him be quick, let him speed his work, that we may see it. Let the counsel of the Holy One of Israel draw near. Let it come that we may know it. Woe to those who call evil good and good evil who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. Woe to those who are wise in their own eyes and shrewd in their own sight. Woe to those who are heroes at drinking wine and valiant men in mixing strong drink, who acquit the guilty for a bribe and deprive the innocent of his right. Therefore, as the tongue of the fire devours the stubble and as dry grass sinks down in in the flame, so their root will be as rottenness and their blossom go up like dust. For they have rejected the law of the Lord of hosts and have despised the word of the Holy One of Israel. Therefore, the anger of the Lord was kindled against his people And he stretched out his hand against them and struck them and the mountains quaked and their corpses were as refuse in the midst of the streets. For all this, his anger has not turned away and his hand is stretched out still. He will raise a signal for nations far away and whistle for them from the ends of the earth and behold, quickly, speedily they come. None is weary, none stumbles, none slumbers or sleeps. None, not a waistband is loose, not a sandal strap broken. Their arrows are sharp and their bows bent and their horse horse hooves seem like flint and their wheels like the whirlwind. Their roaring is like a lion. Like the young lions, they roar, they growl and seize their prey. They carry it off and none can rescue. They will growl over it on that day like the growling of the sea. And if one looks to the land, behold, darkness and distress, and the light is darkened by its clouds. This is the word
1: of the Lord. It's a hard word
0: today. And maybe this is the reason why these are not among the most popular chapters in the Bible. The, the rest of this unpacks um, what's gone wrong with us as humanity. And he does it with these six woe statements. Um, Isaiah uses this imagery that it may be a little difficult for us to understand um, at first glance, but what unfolds in these verses really is amazingly universal like it applies to them 2,700 years ago and it applies to us today it applies to people in the west and the east in the north and the south it's insightful we won't be able to tackle everything in depth the 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 preacher, the Welsh preacher, uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones, wrote a 200-page book just on this chapter of Isaiah. There's a lot in here that we could unpack. There's a penetrating nature to Scripture if we give it a space to work. Here we have a chapter that many have not read, or if you have read it, maybe you read it quickly and, and moved on to another passage. There's so much that that can speak to our lives today. So let's run through five of these woes and we'll see how they actually build on each other. It's going to we're going to be dealing with sin, but maybe not the way we normally think about sin. We normally think about sin in terms of actions, lies, acts of adultery, uh, stealing, murders. Those are acts. And we often relegate sin to those types of, of actions. But here God shows us sin is more subtle and alluring and addicting than any of us want to admit. The first woe is a woe to greed and materialism. And this is a hard one to preach on because uh, it it stings in my direction. Verses 8 to 10 describe land grabbing, the effect of doubling up houses and fields Uh, for crops meant the wealthy continued to accumulate wealth and the poor faced more and more of a battle, many having to become subservient to the wealthy. Does this mean then that this is a sin that only the rich are guilty of? By no means. When I did relief work after a natural disaster, I saw people deceive their own relatives in order to get more donations. This is by no means a sin only of the wealthy. It is a sin that all of humanity struggles with. Underlying this is greed. And greed can be an irrational impulse. Kids from the earliest ages learned this word, "mine."
1: It's amazing how quickly that
0: develops in a little, little tiny human. In a city like this, we're inundated with, with temptations to greed. More than 300 shopping malls. All want you to spend every day in them spending your money. We're even told sometimes. I know, I know my government sometimes tells us to, to go and spend money. It's good for the economy, which is good for everyone. But do you see what happens there? There's sort of this weird twist. Basically, you go and spend a bunch of money on yourself, buying yourself stuff, and it's somehow as if you're doing
1: good for the world. Doesn't quite work that way.
0: The sin here is not easy to identify. Um, because we, we, do, we do need stuff. I'm very glad that all of you own clothes. Very glad. And I think you're all glad for that. This passage doesn't condemn owning a house or owning a field. But there's a point where it crosses the line, where it becomes greed. When when the pursuit of stuff begins to control our hearts. When we always want more, the latest gadget, nice cookware, a good meal, a nicer car, there's no end to it. And then we work harder and harder to satisfy this never ending need for more. We really could, I mean, there's enough here that we could explore this issue for the rest of the time but I want to move on. Woe to careless living, verses 11 and 12. At first glance, it appears that this passage is addressing drunkenness, but it's actually broader than that. It's addressing a way of living that doesn't take life seriously. In some ways, it's the opposite of the first woe. The first woe gets us, uh, makes us work harder and harder and become more fixated on getting, you know, we have to earn more to get more stuff. This is almost a coping mechanism because you're working harder and harder Then you need something that numbs the stress, the pain, alcohol, entertainment, partying, They all have a way of numbing us, moving our minds away from that, from the the work or the stress or the worry. This numbing effect is addictive. Verse 11 involves a, a play on words in Hebrew that essentially says this. Those who chase after beer in the morning will be chased by wine in the evening. The the point is this that, that the thing that you are craving becomes such that it controls you.
1: It takes over your willpower.
0: Just like materialism, billions of dollars are spent to entice you into constant entertainment and a pursuit of pleasure. Just like materialism, it can control us and monopolize our affections. It's uh, sad how often I see families sitting together in a restaurant at a table, none talking to each other, all just watching videos on their phones. Now, there's maybe a part of you
1: that's saying, maybe that's just the era we're in. You old man, get used to it.
0: Or, have we let constant entertainment rob us of real relationships? We know that greed is a sin. Even if We find it hard to recognize it in our own lives. We know it's a sin. But a constant desire for fun and entertainment can actually be just as selfish and do just as much harm to our hearts.
1: Woe to those who call evil good. Verse 20. When the pursuit of wealth
0: and pleasure go unchecked, we begin to lose the ability to know what's right or wrong. You may have heard the phrase moral compass. A compass is used to tell you which direction is north. Once you know where north is, then you can figure out the rest, right? I learned it by saying never eat shredded wheat. So North, East, South, West. It's, a, it's, a good, it's good advice in general in life, never eat shredded wheat, but also helps you know how to navigate the compass. But the, the point of a compass, then once you know North, you can get your way out of wherever you're lost in or whatever wilderness you find yourself in. However, there are some objects that can distract a compass. Magnetic objects can give it a false reading. Similarly, our moral choices can be thrown off when we fill our hearts with greed, lust, constant entertainment. We need a moral compass without distraction. This past week... Um, there, a report came out in the United States about the largest Protestant denomination in the US uh, called the Southern Baptist Convention. The report was an external study, in other words, an outside group took on this uh, study to evaluate the denomination's responses to reports of sexual abuse within Southern Baptist churches all over the United States. Sadly, the report revealed leaders in the the denomination, like top leaders in the denomination, covering up the reports of abuse, especially by pastors. These leaders covered up these reports for decades, and in the process discredited those who had been abused. In some cases, it allowed pastors to find jobs in other churches and continue their predatory behavior and abusive behavior. These once highly respected pastors were covering up the sins of others, and they justified these actions by thinking the reputation of the church requires that we cover this up. Or the reputation of this pastor requires that we cover this up. In other words, they began, they began to call evil good. Their moral compass was not functioning. The damage these men inflicted in the lives of so many victims and their families and the churches they let down is beyond calculation. Sin is sinful, and our sinful responses to sin is also sinful. (laughs) I know that's a lot of repetition of a word. Sin is sinful, And our sinful responses to sin is also sinful. In other words, it's not just a matter of our sin, but it's also then how we respond to our sin. Woe to self-sufficiency, verse 21. Once we begin to justify our sin by calling it good, we cut God out of our thinking. We make ourselves the judge of what is right, which basically means we are replacing God with ourselves. This report that I referred to on decades of cover-ups regarding terrible accounts of abuse was made worse when decision-makers chose to listen to legal advice rather than what was discerning what was right before God the lawyers were paid to
1: protect the institution.
0: It was an act of self-sufficiency. And we need to be clear as Christians that no matter what, sin has no place in God's kingdom. Even if it somehow we justify it to say that the ends will be justified, it, sin is it's just not, it's not the way things can be done in God's kingdom. The final woe, woe to injustice, verses 22 to 25. When we lose our moral compass and we rely on ourselves rather than God, It can only lead towards injustice. This is what we saw in the cover-ups in this report. A number of the victims of abuse were treated terribly, in many cases robbed of proper legal action, lied about in public, shunned, sometimes even by their own family members the desire to keep sin hidden led
1: to injustice.
0: So what we see is this almost accumulation in these woes. There's, there's, there might be in your thinking, you know, materialism is like, um, you know, it's, it's low level sin. It's, you can, you know, like the way we describe a white lie, right? It's, it, you're just dabbling in, in light sin. And, and what, what this passage brings to light is little things matter. The way we think about what we buy and how we spend our time, that, that shapes us, that forms us. When we devote more and more of our resources to personal entertainment and accumulation, the more we deceive ourselves into self-sufficiency. We become our own kings and queens. This distorts how we think about others and God. And here in Isaiah, we're reminded of this danger of steering away from God and our desperate need for God in our lives. He is the one who gives us the true lifeline. Uh, A few years back, well, let me say this. I've had, I've had dingy fever twice. The first time I had it, it was fairly obvious. Um, you know, I started to have little, little red bumps all over my skin and I had a fever and I said, I think I have dinghy fever. And I went to the doctor and the doctor says, you have dinghy fever. Um, and he did a test and my, my, Blood levels were okay. And he said, just go home and drink tons and tons of water. And that's what I did. I drank water like I've never drunk water before and recovered. It it was not so bad. The second time, I didn't know I had dinghy fever. I didn't get the little red bumps that, you know, tell you that you might have dinghy fever. I thought I just had maybe some kind of flu. I was, it was a busy season. I was pushing hard, my body, body was exhausted and I just kept getting worse and worse. And so we went to the doctor and same doctor. And this time, uh, you know, he said, you have dinghy fever. And I said, okay, so can I just take water, drink a lot of water? he's like, no, you need to go to the hospital. And it wasn't the most, you know, I don't know when a convenient time to go to the hospital is, but this was not a convenient time to go to the hospital. And so we asked, well, what if we go tomorrow morning? He said, you could die. Okay. <laughs> go to the hospital, we will. Um, our, my platelet count was just dangerously low, and I needed outside help. I needed an intravenous lifeline to
1: put fluids back into my body.
0: When we are stuck in our sinful habits, we need external help. The true third, the third point, the true vine that bears good fruit. So when um, the pull of materialism, And entertainment pulls on us, draws us, uh, shapes, begins shaping our heart. Uh, We open ourselves to influences that lead us down a path that can lead to destruction. Our hearts shift away from the things that we should value and love. What, What do you love the most? What do you give most of your time to? What do you think about the most? What do you dream about the most? What do you worry about the most? The answers to these questions might be quite revealing about the state of your heart, if you're answering them honestly. The message in Isaiah from God is simply this that without God, our hearts will always be wayward. Sin will always overtake us. We will only produce sour, terrible fruit. And God, we saw, God did so much already. He sets us up to thrive and be fruitful, and yet we fell short. God gave us warnings like we have in this chapter. But even with the warnings... We did not correct our course. What more could God do?
1: What God could do was
0: He sent His Son to become the true vine. I'm going to, we read from John chapter 15 earlier. I'm going to read these words again. These are the words of Jesus I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. and so prove to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. Jesus offers us a lifeline. That we need to survive. We cannot be the vine on our own. Jesus was never captive to the enticements of materialism. He owned little to nothing and maintained a clear sense of right and wrong every step of the way, even when people tried to trick him with their questions. But he's not just an example for us. Jesus took on himself the severe consequences of our godless living and died for us and then put death to death, inviting us to live as we have never lived before. I hope you hear what I'm saying here. It's not just a matter of you're a sinner and Jesus gets you out of eternal condemnation, although that is true. What Jesus promises is a better life now and forever. If you abide in Jesus, you no longer have to abide in the never-ending pursuit of pleasure and worldly goods. You are invited into a different pursuit, one that truly satisfies. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. So finally, last, last few comments here. Some things to take away from this. Four things. Hear the warning. I think we can have a tendency to want to just dismiss the warning. Oh, yeah, yeah. Send bad. I'll try, try better. Uh, that's, not, that's not what we're saying here. That's not what this is pointing out. It's pointing out that our sinfulness goes so much deeper than we realize. And it's, it's a complicated thing in a very complicated world. Where is that line of materialism? Where is that line for entertainment? I'm not telling you to go and cancel your Netflix account. But Netflix, I mean, they, they design their stuff so that it just keeps you sucked in for, for days
1: if you let it. So hear
0: the warning. Evaluate your life. Ask hard questions. How do you spend your money? What, what do you think about when you wake up in the morning? What drives you? In your work. Evaluate your life in light of God's word. Thirdly, abide in Christ. And that's what Jesus is asking us to do in John 15, to abide in him. And I would say that this needs to be a daily exercise. Sunday morning isn't going to cut it. Because every day you're getting other kinds of messaging that's drawing you, pulling you, discipling you. One way to do that is to daily spend time in God's Word. I, I saw some research recently talking about languages. Language, language um, whether we recognize it or not, Language is so much a part of just even how we see the world. It gives us categories for how we understand the world and the ways we think and process. Well, what by reading the Scriptures consistently and regularly, we develop a language of a kind. We develop a more godly language. We we develop... Um, more sensitivity to, to sin, matters of sin. We develop a grander understanding of who God is. So abide in Christ through prayer, through time in the Word. And then fourthly, rely on God. And that is, if there's one overall message in Isaiah, it is that. It is that you cannot make it by relying on yourself, that you must turn to God. And God desires for you to do so. Desires to be your loving father. So will you hear the warning, evaluate your life, abide in Christ, and rely on God? Will you join me in prayer?
1: Father, we um, we confess.
0: This is a hard word. Um, it's it's a word that um, exposes aspects of of my life that I don't always want to think through or evaluate.
1: So, Father, I ask that we would hear. Your warning. That you gave this warning. With
0: purpose. With intent. But also God that you have called us your beloved. And that you have not. Left us to wither. But rather you have. Invited us to be connected to the true vine, the lifeline. And so, Father, I pray for all of us that we might evaluate our our lives, evaluate the way we live, and that we might connect
1: to you. We thank you, God, that,
0: that all that we have done that you have seen it, and yet still you sent your son Jesus to die for us. We thank you for salvation. We thank you for life, and we thank you for the joy that it brings us. It's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen.